This morning we are in week seven of A Church Without Curtains, and uh, if you're taking notes, you're on page 103 of your book, 103. If you want to open to there and take notes, that's great. Um, and this morning we're going to spend a good deal of the time talking about light, L-I-G-H-T, light. If you spend much time in the scriptures, you'll discover right away that light is thematic from Genesis to Revelation. As a matter of fact, the word light is used 13 times in the opening chapter of Genesis. You just can't miss it. If you start to read through, you're going to see it 33 times in the Psalms. Psalms like Psalm 18 says, for you light my lamp, you God are, are my, lightens my darkness. Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? And then we get to Isaiah 61, which is a passage we looked at last week, and Jesus is talking about his proclamation of mission, and as it gets through that passage, he says, I came to release from darkness the prisoners and bring them into the light. So last week, as we looked at that declaration of mission, the takeaway for you was that his mission is your mission. And so what we're going to do this week is look at another bold claim, if you will. I kept thinking all week, I kept wanting to write the word audacious, but audacious usually has a negative connotation to it, but it doesn't necessarily have to. But what Jesus says so often is, is really bold. It's audacious. It's crazy when you see it, and as you, hopefully you'll see it today in context, you'll realize just how out there what Jesus said, especially if it wasn't true. Now, it's not out there if it's true, but for the people hearing it, trying to wrap their minds around it, he made some really bold claims about who he is. So grab your Bibles, turn to John chapter 8, John, the Gospel of John chapter 8, and we're going to read verses 12 through 20, but as usual, I'm going to stop before I read and give you just a little bit of context, because in this particular case, we're going to look at verses from 8, and we're going to jump back and look at verses from 7. If you see the context, what he says becomes so much more rich and so much more meaningful. Jesus is speaking to the crowds that have gathered for one of three annual feasts, and all three of the feasts that, that the people of Israel were called to have the Jewish people who were called in the scriptures to have these three feasts, all of them look back to the Exodus story. So we have the Passover feast, which we're going to participate in part of that when we do the Seder meal here on Good Friday. And then you had the Feast of, of Weeks or Pentecost, which was celebrating when Moses went up on the mountain and received the law from God. And then you have the Feast of the Tabernacle which celebrated how God provided for them throughout those 40 years in the desert. So all three of the feasts centered around God's people, the leaving of Egypt, and the Exodus story. And all of them were there to remind them of what God did, but it was also, as you're going to see, a look forward to what God is going to do. So they were looking back and remembering, and they were looking forward and praying for what God is going to do. So this is at that last feast that I talked about, the Feast of the Tabernacle, when Jesus says these words. Verse 12, it says, Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And Jesus answered, if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I came from and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me also. 
They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered them, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Now make sure you keep your Bibles open because we're going to look at some stuff from chapter 7 as well, Uh, but I just want to pray for us. Lord, uh, as we unpack this uh, amazing declaration of who you are, Jesus' words, I just pray that you would give me wisdom. Uh, I feel like I have 10 sermons running through my head even as I stand here, so I pray that you would give me clarity, that I would say what you want me to say and the rest of it would just fall away. I pray uh, this morning that truth would land in our hearts that we would impact, be impacted by the living God and that we would leave this place different than we came. Help your words to take root and to bear fruit in our lives. Not the words of Doug, not the, the songs that John or Evie or, or Caleb sang, but the, your words when you speak through your people. In Jesus' name, amen. So the passage we read starts with the word, again, Jesus spoke. And to understand why they say this, it's worth taking our time and going back and seeing when he spoke before. Why is it saying again? So just go, turn to chapter seven real quick. And this is a reference to the, to, to the very last time Jesus stood in the temple and he talked. So verses 37 and 38, this is what Jesus said just prior to that. So one happens in the morning and one happens in the evening. So in the morning, he said these words, verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, if anyone thirsts, let them come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So Jesus boldly proclaims in the morning, whoever comes to me will never thirst again, that I will give them living water. And then in the afternoon, in the evening, he proclaims, I am the light of the world. And the context of this setting makes all of this make sense. So if you were a first century reader and you read those words in verse 37 where it says on the last day of the greatest day of the festival, they would have known it was the festival of the tabernacle. They would have known what was going on. They would have seen all the context in their mind's eye in the same way that if I were to write something and talk about a Christmas, American Christmas, you would automatically see Christmas trees and decorations and all the things that come with that. Now we don't necessarily see that because we don't have the same kind of context, but that's the picture I want to paint for you this morning. Like I already said, it's the Feast of the Tabernacle, right? It's a celebration, remembering how God brought the people through uh, the land, and it's, it's a celebration of how they lived for their, those 40 years. And, and whenever this festival would come, thousands and thousands of people would converge on Jerusalem, and they would all stay in these little tents, these little huts that they built that are called tabernacle. If you just look up the word tabernacle, it's just a a temporary shelter is what it's called. And a a tabernacle was usually just a three-sided building with a thatch roof, but they would leave their homes and they would build these, even sometimes on the roofs of their house and their front yards and their courtyards along the sides of the road. Anywhere there was a flat surface, they would build these. And for eight days, they would live in these shelters. During the festival, they would actually move out of their home and they would have this huge citywide camping trip. It sounds like a lot of fun to me, actually, when I think about it. It just sounds like it would be such a community event, right? Everybody outside eating together, living together in community to remind them that this is how the the people lived when they were wandering the desert for 40 years, right? So, So they do this to remember. And then every morning to celebrate this festival, they would gather at the temple and and they would practice and, and, and celebrate two major themes. They would celebrate water, 
Why water? Because God brought water from the rock, and without the water, they would have died in the desert, right? And they would celebrate light. Why light? Because of the pillar of fire. So those were the two elements. For eight days, they're celebrating water, and they're celebrating light, and they're, and they're making a big deal of it. So in the morning, uh, they would gather, and all, the priests would all march down to, uh, with, with music playing and singers singing, they would march down to the Pool of Shalom, which was also known as the Pool of Living Water, and they would fill these golden flasks with water, and then they would carry this living water back up to the Temple Mount, and they would pour the water out into this system of troughs, and the water would run through the troughs throughout the entire temple. Right, and, and they would sing this song out of Isaiah 12, 3, where it says, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. So as they poured out the water, they would sing and they would be remembering what God did, but they would also be praying for the coming Messiah, the day when this Messiah comes and saves them from their oppression and, and saves them from, from this this evil ruling of the Roman Empire. So there's this crying out for what's going to be and this remembering what was. Now, I want you to visualize that, all that pomp and circumstance, the music playing, the people singing, and that's where Jesus is standing in the morning, right there in the courtyard with the water running around him. And he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He's not just pulling this out of the air and just making this random statement. It's all in context of the festival and what's going on. It's so rich. When you start to see what the festivals were all about and what Jesus is saying, it reminds you that God has been up to something for thousands of years. He's writing a story, and Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those stories. When I read this, and I put it into context, I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis when C.S. Lewis said these words. He's talking about Jesus, and he said, he is either God or he's a madman, right? He would, he would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg. Who else would he be? He would be the devil of hell. You have to make a choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or he is simply a madman or something worse, this is a bold proclamation. In the middle of this festival, he says, I am. I am. He's using that language with great purpose. I am. So for 1,400 years, since the liberation of Egypt, the people have been crying out for salvation, right? And, and Jesus stands in the temple and he says, good news, I'm here. Good news, I, I'm the living water you've been singing about. I'm, I'm the living water you've been praying for. This is an outrageous, it, it is an audacious claim, but it's true. So even in the morning, Jesus comes and he stands there and he says, I am living water and it can only be found. Your thirst can only be quenched. What you're really asking for can only be quenched in me. And then in the same afternoon, in the same temple court where the women and the men are gathered, so it's the area where everybody can come, he says these words. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's John 8, 12 that we just read. So the second element of the festival, the first was water, good, and the second is light. And here's the way it would work. There were four huge candelabras. There is a first century documentation that says these candelabras, I think we have a picture, I hope we have a picture 
um, of these candelabras. So uh, something similar to this, they might have looked something like this on the top, but the first century writing says that these candelabras, this one actually is a picture of a candelabra that's in Jerusalem that's probably only four or five feet tall, but it looks bigger with those people in the background. But in the first century, they said the candelabras were probably 70, 70 feet tall. A marvel of, of engineering, if you think about it. And it says that the, the wicks were made from the used undergarments of the priests. And they would put these huge candelabras in this first century writing that said when, when all of these candelabras were lit, that it would, it would light up all of Jerusalem, that there was no darkness in any of the courtyards. And you have to put that all in context. No electricity, right? Darkness, when it's dark, it's dark. And all of a sudden, there is this spectacle of, of amazing light, 70 foot tall, four candelabras that are put up there, right? It just so happens that this is the spot where Jesus is standing, under these huge 70-foot candelabras that are lighting up the entire hill of Jerusalem where the city is, and he proclaims, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. He says, you've been waiting all this time for the light to come. You've been celebrating the light. He's not beating around the bush. He's not being coy. When I used to read the Gospels before I understood all this, I used to think, why was Jesus so mysterious? Why didn't he just say who he was? And I want you to know, he was saying who he is loud and clear. To the first century reader, they would know that Jesus' proclamation was, I am the Messiah. He was not beating around the bush. He was not being coy. He's saying, I'm the one you've been waiting for. I'm the water and I'm the light. And then the, the, the Pharisees, the leaders, kind of go on this weird sort of detour. I'm not sure I can explain this one very well. I've been thinking about it all week. But they, they start to ask him, like, who's your witness? He's saying, I'm God. And they're saying, who's your witness? Like, it's kinda, it is kind of a stupid question. I'm just saying. <laughs> right? Well, I guess, who, who would be your witness? Like, it could be the disciples say, well, he's really done some great stuff, so we believe him. But that's not really a witness. That's just a, a belief. It's kind of an, even a, a crazy question that they would ask. But Jesus uses it as a teaching moment, and he talks about the fact that the Father is his witness. Everything I do, I do for the Father. I know the Father. The Father has sent me. I am, my witness is true. But, but if I claim to be God, first of all, you shouldn't believe me. But if you ask me, well, well who can back up that story? Well, God. Right? It's kind of crazy. Just think about it. But, but it's all there in context. And so Jesus says to him, I'm the one who bears witness about myself. This is verse 18. And the Father who sent me bears witness about me also. He's just saying, God sent me to fulfill the law. God sent me to fulfill all you've been praying for in the festivals. Your prayer for salvation has been answered. And if you go back to the original text, over and over, he keeps saying, I am. Those are powerful words. And we, we add, I am he, so that it makes more sense in our reading. But he is saying, I am, I am, I am. Why? Because that was the name for God. When Moses said, who should I say sent me? He said, tell them, I am. So he's using loaded language, big time loaded language in all of this. So he's saying, I'm the one, right? 
So in just a few days from now, from today, we're going to do the Passover uh, kind of celebration. We're going to do that Seder experience. And you're going to see the same thing in a different festival, how Jesus fulfilled, how Jesus used that festival and how he was part of bringing all that. to. That's why the Seder experience is so rich. So I just want to encourage you, come on Good Friday, because it's just another reminder of, of what God has been up to for century after century, preparing his people for Jesus. It's really, for me, it's just incredibly faith producing. When you begin to see the richness of the festival and you begin to see all that was going on and how it all pointed towards Jesus, it's just, it's incredible. I had this like, all week I've had kind of this stirring in my gut. Like I hope that you can grasp what God has been up to all this time. So Jesus is living water, right? He says, if you, if you follow me, if you believe in me, he says, living water will flow from you. And then he says, I am the light of world. And if you follow me, and I love that those are two different things. If you believe in me, you're gonna have this living water. And if you follow me, you're gonna stay in the light. You're gonna have the light. So what I wanna do for just the next few minutes is I want to just spend some time helping you to understand, so what is light? What does light represent in the scriptures? If Jesus is the light of the world, what does that really application, what does it mean for us? And the first thing it means is that, that the light represents, when you look at scripture, God's presence. Light represents God's presence. If you take a note, you can just write the word light, and then I'm gonna give you four things that light represents in scriptures. We see this throughout the scriptures, um, but, but here, in the, the priests would pray this for the people. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine. So you see the, the light in that. Cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious. May the Lord lift his countenance up to you and give you peace. In Psalm 4, it says, may the Lord many Lord, are asking who will bring prosperity. Let the light of your face shine on us. Fill my heart with joy. I love these passages because when you dig into them, what it's really a picture of is a Abba Father who is fixing his gaze on a child. And, and maybe the only way you can get this is to think of your own child in that time when you could kind of look them in the eye and give them a sense of confidence by sort of saying to them, I gotcha, you're okay. You can, you can do this. I'm not going to let you fail. I'm behind you all the way. It's that like eye to eye. My face is shining on your face, and you can do that thing that I've called you to do because I'm with you. I'm for you. I'm behind you, right? That's the picture of this. So it's this, this beautiful presence that, that, if, that if I have that moment with my son, my son is going to know my dad's with me. Right, I can do this because I got the confidence of my dad and I got the backing of my dad. He sees me, he's for me. And that's what this is a picture of, God seeing you and, and, and you having a sense that God is with me in everything that I do. It's a beautiful picture. And Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I am God's presence for you. Through me, God's face will shine on you. Through me, you will experience the presence of God in your life. And how many of you need more of the presence of God in your life. I'll raise both my hands for that. Well, God's presence is only found in Jesus, who is our light. He says, believe in me and follow me and you will have light. Light represents God's salvation. That's the second thing, God's salvation. Throughout the scriptures, light represents God showing up and, and saving the people from whatever it is they're in. Psalms 27 says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 44, the psalmist recognizes not in human strength, but only in God's light are we saved. It was not by their sword that they won the land, not by their arms that they got victory. It is your right hand, your arm, and the light of your face, for you love them. 
Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. In me, you're going to find the presence of God, and you're also going to find salvation, salvation from death, salvation from sin, salvation from depression, salvation from anxiety, salvation from sickness. I am the light of the world. How many of you need Jesus to show up and to to bring rescue in certain areas of your life? Again, I'll raise both my hands. Salvation is only found in the person of Jesus, who is our light. And he says, believe in me, follow me, and you will have salvation. Light also represents God's direction. God's direction. This aspect of of God's life is found only in Jesus, and it's the light that we need to follow God faithfully. Right? It's, it's this picture of, of, of having a light that directs our steps. So throughout the Lenten season, Meg and I have been opening the chapel at 6.30 and keeping it open until 8.30. So we're going to keep doing that up to Good Friday. So if you want to come and hang out with us, that's great. But the rhythm is we get here at 6.30. We come through the side doors. I open the chapel. Uh, we get everything settled in there. I turn on the music. I light the candles. And then I come through this door right here, through the sanctuary, and I go upstairs and I get a couple of, of cups of hot water and lemon for both Meg and I to sit there and have some hot water and lemon while we're doing our morning devotionals. But when I come in that door, there's no light switch and this room is always dark. And the first time I did it, I thought, well, it'll be fine. I'll just find my way in the dark. And I kind of like fell down those steps and it was kind of silly, right? Well, now when I get to the door, I take out my phone and I turn on my flashlight and I follow my flashlight down this hall and out the door. Why do I do that? Because I need a light to light my path. Otherwise I run into a chair. I fall down the steps. All kinds of things happen when we try to maneuver in the dark, Right, But that's the picture that we have here is that, that Jesus lights our path so that we can see where we're going, so that we don't stumble, so that we don't fall. How many of you need a little help to know where to go and what to do? I'll raise both my hands. And Jesus says, believe in me, follow me, and, and I will direct your path. And then lastly, it's God's revelation. In Jesus, we actually see who God really is. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. I'm the presence of God. I'm the salvation. I'm I'm the revelation of God. I'm direction. But revelation, in this case, he's saying, if you know me, you know the Father. Anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. So even in our passage in verse 19, he's talking to the leaders and he says, you don't know me and you don't know the Father, but, but you know neither me nor the Father. If you knew me, you would know the Father because we are one. So there's this beautiful picture as as we meditate on the person of Jesus, who he was, what he did, his life, and how he sacrificed his life on the cross, it takes us to a place of knowing the love of the Father, knowing who God is. He came to show us who God is. How many of you would like to know God more? I would, for sure. How many of you like to know the love of God more and more and more? Jesus says, if you believe in me and you follow me, you will grow in your understanding of who God is, your heavenly father that loves you more than you can even comprehend. So Jesus is standing in the temple under these massive candelabras that are lighting the whole city. And he's saying, I am the light of the world. I am the means by which you will experience the presence of God, the salvation of God. You will experience God's direction in in your life. You will experience God's revelation in your life. In me, there is no darkness. But here's the problem. 
We all follow in the footsteps of our ancestor Adam and we hide. We partition parts of our hearts and parts of our lives off. We erect curtains to hold out the light of the world. Why do we put up a curtain? Why do we close the curtains? Every evening I get up and I close the blinds because I want to block out the outside. I want the light of just what's in our house. I don't want people to be able to see in. It's a way of, of hiding, right? It's a way of keeping the light from coming in. That's what a curtain is for. And the Spirit of God comes and he calls you by name and he says, where are you? Are you hiding or are you walking in the light? I want you to listen to me really closely, church. Satan is real. We don't teach a, a myth here. Satan is real and the scriptures say he is a roaring lion and he is looking to devour you. And the main way he's going to do that is by having hidden things in your life, secret things in your life. Those things that you keep in the dark are going to destroy your relationships. Satan is real, but the good news is he's powerless before Jesus. I've been thinking all week about the fact that you never really see darkness wrestle with light. When the light comes, the darkness just goes away. There isn't a battle going on between light and darkness. Light just makes the dark go away. It's an amazing thing when you just think about it. John 4, 4 says, Dear children, you are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Jesus has won the victory. And here's the deal. When you have these places in your life and these things in your life that you're not willing to let the light shine on, uh, these become beachheads. Now, I want to just talk about that for a minute, and I'm kind of mixing, I was thinking about that this morning, kind of mixing metaphors. We use curtains, now I'm using beachheads, but I want you to get the beachhead because we're talking about a battle here between good and evil. And what is a beachhead? If you just think about it, some of the bloodiest battles in modern history anyway have been on the beaches. Right? Think about Normandy. What's that all about? Well, if you want to secure an island, if you want to secure a landmass, there has to be a place for the advancement of troops, for the advancement of supplies, for the advance. They got to have some way of getting onto that landmass and doing what they need to do. Securing the beach is critical to the success of the invading army. Right? So again, think about Normandy. Think about all that happened there that was critical that they take that beach if they were going to liberate Europe from the, the Nazis. It's a place where the troops and the supplies can advance. And when we hide, when we put up a curtain, right, or when we try to go it alone, when we have hidden sin, that is a beachhead for Satan to advance into our lives. We give him access. We literally give him access to our very being. It's what destroys our marriages. It's what breaks up our friendships. It's what splits churches. It's what cripples ministry. It's what dulls the radiant light of God in our lives. And the only solution is to fall back on the words of Jesus, who is the light of the world, and allow the light of Jesus to bring all of those things into focus. I was laying in bed a few years ago, and I felt like God said to me, I'm sure that God said to me, tell them that Jesus is the answer to every problem they're facing. 
That is the proclamation that God has given me for you. Jesus is the answer to every problem you're facing, but you have to expose your problems to him. He'll let you carry them if you want to, but he's the light of the world. So unforgiveness can be a beachhead. Excessive worry can be a beachhead. Gossip can be a beachhead. Pornography can be a beachhead. Overeating can be a beachhead. Always being offended by the, by the actions of others can be a beachhead. Radical prejudice can be a, a beachhead. I could just go on and on. All the things that we hold on to and we think that we need to, this is mine, and we don't bring it into the light, those are all beachheads that allow the enemy to advance in our lives. And these are all things that thrive in darkness. But the good news is Jesus said, I am the light of the world. I have come to utterly destroy the darkness. So I want to do something a little different. I'm going to close with a responsive reading. If you grew up in an older traditional church, maybe a Baptist church or, or a high church, then you may have done responsive readings before. Uh, the difference is it's not in the back of our hymnal. We're going to do it on the screen. Um, but I want to encourage you to do two things. First, I want to encourage you to stand with me as we do this. So if you'll just stand. Um, but I would like you to not just read it uh, in a rote sort of way. I would love for you to read this responsive reading as a prayer. And it's how we're going to end. But, but even the words that I speak, speak them into your, into your heart. Pray them as a prayer back to God. So can we put the first slide up there so I can kind of explain how this works? So uh, you can see there's, they're kind of different. This has kind of a weird highlighting to it. Well, it's not weird. It's very pretty. Thank you for those who've created it. Um, I'm going to read this, and then it'll say your response, and you're going to read this. And we'll go to the next slide and do the same thing. Are we all with me? All right. But I need to get to that page. All right. The Lord is my light and my salvation. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. I am still confident of this. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. The Lord is my life and my salvation. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. And I will The Lord is my light and my salvation. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. When I am afraid, I will remember. When I am tempted, I will remember. When I am feeling lonely, I will remember. When I am feeling inadequate, I will remember. Lord, I just pray that these words would not be just words, that they would sink deep into our spirit, that we would know that you are our light and our salvation. You are the very presence of God in our lives. You are the one who gives us direction. You are the one that brings the knowledge of our heavenly Father to us, and I pray that we would live into that truth as we lean into you. I pray, Lord, in this moment, 
that we would reveal back to you any hidden sin that we would let go of those things that are causing us not to be all that you've called us to be. Oh, we thank you that you indeed are the light of the world. Help us to live into that beautiful truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. We got people that would love to pray for you down here. Come on down.